1: The podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this hundred-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Peeps, And welcome to Woke AF Daily with me, your girl, Danielle Moody, recording live in our Podstream studios here in Times Square. You know, folks, we have finally made it to the end of this god awful fucking week. If you've been following my Instagram at all, you know that I have been going through it. There are some weeks where the weight of our political and cultural discourse can kind of roll off my back, right? That I move through and really don't let things affect me. But this week of all weeks has really been trying my spirit and my soul. So on this fuck it Friday, I'm pretty much saying fuck it to every single goddamn thing. Coming up next, dear friends, is going to be my conversation with the author of the book, Becoming Abolitionist, Derricka Purnell. I enjoyed this conversation so much, and I hope all of you do too. Folks, I am so excited to welcome to Woke AF Daily for the first time author, uh, Derricka Purnell, who is the author of a book whose title I just love, Becoming Abolitionist. Um, Derricka, we have talked about abolition on Woke AF in so many different forms, um, in so many different ways about what it means to abolish something, what it means to purge it. Right. And I think that in order to purge something, you have to recognize it. You have to recognize its ills, um, the troubles, the trauma, the grief that it is bringing. When we talked about abolitionists during slavery, we were, you know, abolishing a system of depravity, of cruelty, of horrific, um, treatment of human beings. When you wrote this book and you're and the title "Becoming Abolitionist," what does that mean to you?
3: Oh wow, I love this question. I love the foregrounding. So, one, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited about this conversation. I I went back and forth on titles. It was very hard trying to figure out which title made the most sense for this book. And the reason why I ultimately landed on becoming abolitionists with this plural S is because to, to be an abolitionist, I believe, is to always be in the process of the journey and reevaluating what makes the most sense for the future that we want to build. Right. And so like the reasons why I was an abolitionist when I first started writing the book are very different than some mm. of the reasons that I have right now. And it's just allowing yourself to be curious enough to ask questions, to be in conversation with people, to be wrong sometimes, to reflect and to say, oh, wow, I used to think this about myself. I used to think this about the world. I used to think this about police and prisons. And now with more information I have new, better reasons to not want the police to be here. I have new, better reasons why why I don't think that we should have prisons in this society. And so in the book, I try to show that journey for me, but also for other people, right? Uh, 10, 12 years ago, I guess 10 years ago, oh my gosh, 10 years ago, about 10 years ago when George Zimmerman killed Trayvon Martin, there were so many of us who were fighting spending hours sacrificing, you know, our work, our families, our school to make sure that someone was arrested. That is what we put that energy in. And there's so many of those people who were at the forefront of those movements who now don't even believe in arrest, don't even believe in prisons, don't even believe in police. And I wanted to talk about that because when people Critique abolitionists, they'll say something like, well, you know, this isn't realistic. When we try the realistic thing, right? Like, like we have spent our lives learning about the realistic way you're supposed to hold someone accountable. accountable. And now that we know that those systems were never intended to actually offer true justice, true accountability. And so we're constantly becoming examining what kinds of systems that we want to abolish and then what we also want to
2: build.
0: You know, I, I love that one because I think that the journey that your book lays out is the journey that many of us are on, right? Where we wanted to believe in a criminal justice system, in a judicial system that was going to see our full humanity, that was going to actually uphold the creed, uh, that justice is, is in fact blind. Right. Um, I think that, from 2000 and what was it 2014 until now, right? The amount of hashtags, the amount of unarmed black people that have been murdered, the the video of nine minutes of George Floyd, losing his losing, having the life squeezed out of him, not losing his life, having his life stolen from him. You know, I wanted to believe in the beginning when we saw Trayvon Martin to your point that There's no doubt. This is a child, right? This was an adult. And so we, we know that he will be convicted because how, how could he not? And it was in that moment for me that I just, I, the faith that I had in, in our politics, in our, in our government, in our systems began to wane. And I, and I want to talk to you about these different pinpointed moments, because You also lay out very clearly where you grew up, right? The neighborhoods and how they were um, filled with various forms of violence, whether you're talking about environmental injustice factors or you're talking about actual crime or the lack of jobs and, you know, good schools and hopefulness. What are those kind of pinpoint moments that stand out for you over this timeline of moving from believing in the probability that a policing system could work for Black people and then understanding that it was never meant to?
3: Yes, yes. So I would say that early on, rather than saying that I like believe that this system worked for us, I think now having written the book and read it like a thousand times for all the edits, I think what's probably the most accurate thing for me to say is that I had really unexamined ideas about policing, right? I had unexamined ideas about my own commitments to policing. I just assumed that they were here. I didn't ask where they came from. I didn't ask if we needed them. It was just like, oh, police kind of exists like male people exist, like firefighters exist, like teachers, they're just just a part of society. I didn't even have the wherewithal. I knew that there were, problematic police. I knew that there were police who were my mom's friends, right? I, I, I There was a range of, and there, sometimes there was an overlap <laughs> in that Venn diagram, but, you know, I, I just took for granted their existence. I really had unexamined commitments to, to these institutions. And so over time, um, especially when Michael Brown was killed, that was one of the first times I started being pushed to ask, okay, like, what is this thing about? Like why, why why is this? Why can't cops just kill someone and kind of like go home? It was very, it was a very huge political awakening for me and lots of other people. And what I also realized I was doing at that time, long, alongside lots of other people, I was using um, what white people get, or at least what I perceive white people to receive as justice, as a metric for what I thought we deserve too. So I would say something mm. like this happened to a white boy. Like we already know this black cop would be in jail. And we don't even have to guess because Muhammad Noor in Minnesota end up killing, I think, Justine Diamond, the white woman from Australia. He's in prison, right? So we would say, you know, if this was a white person, this is what would happen. If this was a white person, this is what would happen. And at some point, by being in conversation with other organizers, doing more studying, doing more research, learning about the origins of police, I had to be like, wait, what if this system that we know is racially unjust, what if it's also not working for white people? And we're fighting to get what white people have. We're fighting to get the justice that white people think yep. they get. And it's just like, what if, what if we get what white people get? Will that then mean that fewer Black people will die? Uh-huh. Right? And I don't think that's true. Because white people are killed by police all the time. And I just don't want cops to go to prison after they kill us. I want the killings to stop. I want the violence to stop. And so it just completely disrupted my, my notions of justice and fairness and equity. And I had to let go of that metric. I had to ask, is it unfair that we don't have it? Yes. But does it mean that it's real justice if we get it? And that answer was not clear to me.
0: You know, that is so illuminating because I think that we spend a lot of times comparing comparing ourselves, right? Comparing what it is that black people don't have versus what it is that white people have the fact is is that because we have qualified immunity in this country yes. because you can just be a cop and you can fear for your life regardless of who is in front of you
2: exactly. kill them
0: and then go home is in fact the problem right and right now just you know just last week we had uh, after eight months of supposed deliberation and back and forth between, you know, uh, Senator Cory Booker and Senator Tim Scott, they want to come out and be like, nope, the gap is too large for us to do anything about policing reform. So this moment of George Floyd having his life squeezed out of him for nine minutes that we all watched together, they want to tell us after eight months, well, we just can't do anything. Yes. So we stay with the status quo or devolve even worse into the place that we are. What does that feel like? How how did that feel to you? Do you know what I'm saying? Like after we all witnessed this collectively in the midst of quarantine, where mm-hmm. we are all glued to our devices, glued exactly. to our television and witnessed this collective horror together. And now eight months later, they tell us that what we thought was the spark of something new is now, oh, it's just too big to do?
3: Yeah, so I felt, I think, two immediate things. The first thing that I felt was immediately sympathy for George Floyd's family. Because, you know, Joe Biden had promised them, I'm going to champion police reform. I intend to keep that promise. I got you. We're going to name this after George Floyd. We're going to, you know, put you on front stage at the Democratic National Convention. We're going to rally. behind." he was doing all of this while also still promising to give more money to police, but he, yeah. which he ultimately did. So he's walking this line, you know, I, we're going to achieve real justice and, and policing that everyone can enjoy. And I'm going to give more money to the police. Okay. So I felt horrible for George Floyd's family to have that hope, to think that someone you're campaigning for, you're, you're trying to get them in office, you're on calls trying to get policy passed. It 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 hurts to think what that family is going going through right now. <clears throat> the second the second thing that I felt, um, how how can I just what's the the most honest way to say this? It's not that I was not surprised. It's not that I felt let down because when the George Floyd Act was initially introduced, I wrote uh, in my column and I completely just. I could just completely disagree with everything about that bill. So here we have a policing bill that I argue wouldn't have even saved George Floyd's life, right? Mm, you know, Derek yep. Chauvin was called, police were called because of an alleged use of a counterfeit $20 bill, which is illegal. And if he used it, it is illegal. And cops have the constitutional power to stop people who's using counterfeit money. You can go to jail, Right. Now, people watch that and it's just like, man, over $20, over $20. Counterfeit $20 bills are important currency for people who are economically exploited. And we're in a recession, job crises, eviction crises. What could have actually helped people like George Floyd, people like my mom, people in our communities was resources, more stimulus, actual money. And so if the cop would have just came and arrested George Floyd, took him to jail, there would have been no uprisings no protest. There would have been no, like, and that's what happens every single day. Yeah, so when yeah. I read this bill, I was just like, so wait, at the end of the day, what the actual problem was, was, you know, people, working class people, Black people living on $20 counterfeit exchanges, being policed, now has become a, a, a way to give police more money to do more training to restrict chokeholds. Well, what about the poor? Why aren't we giving more money to people? Why are we giving more money to police? And at the end of the day, I, I called it in that piece, and I called it in this piece I wrote a couple of days ago. Whenever these reforms get, you know, they go on tour. What ultimately happens, police get more money until the next viral police killing. And all the reforms that don't even work get put off to the side. And three people are still killed every day by police. And so it's frustrating that people have to be like, man, I really had hope in this bill. I really had hope in this policy. When I didn't have any hope, and it was quite bad, actually, right? It was pretty bad. And then it's just like, well, now what? Now what do you do? So reform isn't a realistic option. <laughs> like, and now you're saying imp- abolition is not realistic. Reform is not realistic.
0: You know, it's funny because I have been moving myself towards a place where I'm like, I don't even want to use the terms reform or reimagine because you're reimagining something that is broken, right? Yeah. Like, how do you, how do you reform something? How do you reform a leg that's been amputated? You don't right? Like you need to create something different. And I think for me, that's why abolition in and of itself feels right, because it is the most honest thing. Because if you want to, if you want to create a new system, you don't do so off of what is broken, right? You have to abolish what is, what is present in order to create something new. And I feel like that's, that's where the energy needs to be placed, which is that it's not enough to just say, Oh, we're going to reform. We're going to reimagine, we're going to reassess, and we're going to do all of these things, which is pretty much playing three card Monty with people's Mm -hmm. lives. You're just moving the cards around the table and you're not actually doing anything. It's a bullshit magic magic trick, right? That doesn't produce, that doesn't produce anything. Um, when, when you hear the pushback, when people talked about defund the police, right. And folks had said, you know, we, we shouldn't say defund. And to your point at various points in the book, you're like, you know, if, if we're not, if, if we're, if we're, if we're talking about reallocation of funds, like Then that's the conversation that we, that's what I have said. If we're, if defund the police is really talking about a reallocation of funds to stop having where I sit in New York city, a police department that has a budget of $6 billion. Like when, when, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? So it's like, is, is that language? Should it be reallocation? Should it be defund? Does it matter? If, if we're still, again, playing three card Monty with our criminal justice and policing systems.
3: Yeah, well, I like defund the police for lots of reasons. One reason is because in 2014, when Black Lives Matter took off as a hashtag, people said Black Lives Matter was divisive. Like it's polarizing. All lives matter. I mean, a lot of people didn't say that. Not in good faith. It's like, wait. I would be on board with police not killing Black people, but she said Black Lives Matter, so I can't, I can't even get, it's like, come on, like, seriously, so if, if something is Black Lives Matter, it's polarizing, that they just matter, like, it's like, the floor, the bar is so low, like, it's so Mm -hmm. so, so low, right? The second thing I noticed around Black Lives Matter is that anyone, once it became more palatable, Anyone could kind of say Black Lives Matter and they're not really mean anything that much anymore. You can say Black Lives Matter to defund the police. You can say Black Lives Matter to give more funding to the police and say Black communities want this. Saks Fifth Avenue was saying Black Lives Matter. Everyone was just sort of saying Black Lives Matter. But guess what? Black lives kept dying, right? Black people kept being killed. What's interesting about defund the police is that it's a specific policy demand. It's like take money away from the police. It's much harder to then just co-op something like that, right? I'm not saying it can't be done because I've seen it attempted to be done, but it's it's different. It's it's not as soft as Black Lives Matter, for lack of a better phrase right now. And so that's another thing. A third thing I would say is that any fight towards freedom and justice has always used unpopular language at the time of the fight. Mm -hmm. And then 30, 40, 50 years from now, what do we do? We say, man, I'm so happy they marched for civil rights. Do you know what it was like to say that you were marching for civil rights in 1950s? Civil rights? Oh, you must be a criminal. You're a troublemaker, as if they call MLK. You know, it's to say that you wanted women to be able to vote. It's, imagine a man in the early 1900s saying, whoa, 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 I would be on board with women voting, but I don't like the word suffrage. Like this is actually <laughs> what you're doing when you say, yeah. if, if the phrase is seriously the barrier, then let's figure out how to, explain what the phrase means. But I imagine, I would guess that the people who actually don't like the phrase, most of them, not all of them, I've met a couple of people who have really interesting critical arguments of defund the police and abolition, right? And they're coming from a socialist analysis. They're saying, how do we build a broad base of people who probably agree with what you're saying, but don't understand what it means, but they are committed to explaining what it means. Right. Which is different than I would get on board, but I don't like the language. So you're going to let police continue to kill three people a day because of a marketing campaign. Well, help us think about, you know, creative language and creative ways to explain what abolition is. And so part of that is on abolitionists. When we say abolition, when I say abolition, I mean, we need to dismantle, eradicate, reduce the reasons why people need police. And we need to eradicate the institution of policing. And we need to eradicate the violence in society that make people feel like they need police. It's both. It's at the same time and it's over time. Right. So that's on us to do that. What society, what people who don't know what that means, it's also on them to ask questions, to be curious, to critically engage with mm-hmm. good faith, to read, to, you know, to, to ask. It's it requires both of that. But if you are not even open to having a conversation because of a term you don't understand, I think that's quite unfortunate. And I think there are a lot of resources out here to learn more about what that means.
0: I appreciate that so very much because I think, you know, too, one of the lies that we continue to tell um, in our society with regard to policing is that more police equals more safety. Oh yes. And the thing that I have been saying on Woke AF you know, interviews with former police chiefs, interviews with abolitionists, uh, activists um, like yourself is the fact that any, I grew up in a very white suburb in, of New York on Long Island. And I will tell you that I never saw police officers mm. ever. Right. Like that was not a part of my day to day. If I did, maybe they were, you know, driving past on, you know, on the main strip. What I did see were uh, clean sidewalks, tree lined streets, gated communities, um, uh, country clubs and resource centers and libraries and all of these things. And so, you know, one of the questions that other question that I have for you is how do we break that lie that gaslight about the fact that when we're talking about defund the police, that there's this association. Well, Oh, you don't want to be safe. And I'm like, some of the safest neighborhoods yes. have no police presence. What are you talking about? What they do have are resources and access.
3: Absolutely. Yes. So that's, and the inverse is also true, right? If you look at where I grew up in St. Louis, I did not grow up in a community with tree lined streets. It was very much, very, very much the hood, still is the hood. We haven't had a grocery store since 2000, the year 2000 not a grocery store, not a fruit market, not a community garden in sight, no health clinics, no jobs because the highway ripped apart the the most prosperous place where Black people were employed by Black businesses ripped. All those homes, community businesses gone so people could commute from the suburbs to downtown St. Louis to work, right? And so you look at a community like that, you look in Chicago, you look in D.C. where I'm sitting right now in Northwest, super high rates of like violent crime, also among the highest per capita rates of police. And so the police presence also doesn't reduce the violence that people fear, Mm -hmm. it's just not. And every time, like right now, we experience a murder hike, probably because we're in the pandemic, People are stressed out. There are fewer jobs. There's an eviction crisis that's happening. There's so much precarity that leads people to more vulnerable situations. And when there's precarity and vulnerability in a pandemic, there's violence. Like we know, this researchers know this, scientists know this. But then you read the New York Times, you read mainstream outlets, and it's like, y'all want to defund the police while there's a murder spike right now? Well, Tell me why with a million cops in those places, especially in Chicago, St. Louis, Detroit, D.C., these neighborhoods, there is more police than anywhere else, yet the murder rate is still climbing. It's, yeah, so more police doesn't even equate to more safety. What it, Feels like it's a, it feels like okay at least somebody's here to do something, but it's not as if cops are standing outside of people's homes every night guarding and stopping violence. Like that's not what's happening, right? And so it's it's yeah it, it's the inverse is not true as well. So it's like well, what actually keeps people safe? You no know, resources, strong social networks, mm-hmm. education, jobs. You know, pushing back on racism, homophobia, transphobia, you know, the one of the main reasons why people even kill people in the first place is because usually men want to control the sexuality of their partners, that leads to violence, because you've been conditioned in patriarchy, another reason why people end up killing each other is because of petty arguments. Usually, it's men. Something you said, insulted, Well I have an idea of what a man should be. Police can't stop patriarchy. They can't fix patriarchy, so they can't get to the root problem of solving harm. You know, people join like street gangs for protection. And then if you arrest people who are carrying a gun on them for protection and because they're no jobs, like none of that stuff is in our communities. And then they go to jail, they come out, they have a record. It's going to be even harder for them to get a job, harder for them to get in school, harder for them to get housing. So they're going to retreat to the place where they feel most safe. It's like, how do we support all of those people? How do we fight for broad sweeping changes so that people can be empowered and have self-determination to work in jobs where they have dignity, right? Where they have choices, where they have childcare and, and healthcare and tuition. Like it's, all of those answers are there. And it's actually much cheaper to just fund police who primarily recruited from the working class to police other working class people. It's it's really, really sad. Mm.
0: Well, I, I will say this, Derrica, is that I believe that your book is incredibly important and important in this particular moment that we are living in. And I hope that everyone picks up becoming abolitionists and thinks about that word, thinks about that action and why it matters. And instead of just shrugging off phrases like defund the police or phrases like black lives matter, phrases like, you know, abolition, that you actually begin to understand and unpack why we are saying those things now and why they matter. Derricka Purnell, I wish you the best of success with your book, Becoming Abolitionist. And I hope that you will join us again when you finish your successful tour. um, Because I would love to have you back.
3: Yes, please have me. I really enjoyed this. Thank you for all of your kindness, all your thoughtful questions. I really appreciate it.
0: appreciate you. Thank you. That is it for today's Woke AF Daily Podcast. To hear more from today's show, including my full interview with Derricka Purnell, support me on Patreon at patreon.com slash woke AF. Power to the people and to all the people. Power, get woke and stay woke as fuck. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride in the queer community all year